0: Hey Cracked fans, if you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this – Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So... How can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, LuckyRacket.com. That's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com. And use our promo code, Cracked15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts. 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's LuckyRacket.com. The promo code is Cracked15. podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, December 9th. On today's show, we continue our off-season coverage, breaking down every aspect of the 2021 season, looking forward to 2022 as well. We have so many great topics, so many great podcasts, so many great guests in our queue for all of you listeners. And on today's show, we hit a topic near and dear to our hearts here at Rackets. It's a topic we alluded to at multiple points throughout the 2021 season. If you watched and followed women's and men's tennis closely, you know there was a bit of a renaissance for the American men and women. Now we talked about the top ten American women seasons of 2021 on yesterday's Great Shot podcast with Nina Pantic. You can all find that episode wherever you listen to our podcast or on our website CrackRackets.com. But on today's show, we flip gears. We talk about the top ten American men seasons of the year. And look, as great as the women were, the Renaissance really happened for the American men. You look overall on the year, we had a double digit amount of finalists reaching, you know, 10 men reaching ATP finals in 2021. That is the highest number since the 1990s, often referred to as the golden era in American men's tennis. Now, do we have a top 10 player at, at the end of the season? No. Do we even have a top 20 player in the rankings at the end of the season? No. But when you look at the depth that is accumulating in American men's tennis, certainly Good things feel like they are coming in the future and joining me on today's podcast to put a bow on 2021 and start looking forward to what fans of American men's tennis might be able to expect over the next couple of seasons is a returning champion here on our Cracked Rackets podcast. Of course, you know him best as a writer for our website, crackedrackets.com for last word on tennis or his all about tennis blog. Of course, I know him as my friend. David Gertler. David, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today?
1: Uh, hey, how's it going? I am doing great because, well, for two reasons. First off, Michigan won. Uh, <laughs> second off, I have Survivor tonight, and my the past two weeks, my two least favorite contestants have went home, uh, Shan and Liana, and so... I'm still, for all you Survivor fans, I'm still hoping for that Danny-Xander final. Uh, finger. I don't really like anyone else on this season. Ricard's okay. But uh, Danny and Xander, they're still around, and I'm hoping they stick around.
0: So you give me a bunch of garbage, and by the way, we will not be starting today's podcast with five minutes on Michigan football as we did last time. We had that's you on why the show. I kind of
1: that's yeah, I like
0: that. That was a quick brush aside to number one, but hey, go blue to you, David. Obviously. Uh fantastic result and it was great to be there in Indy to see it all unfold I'll say this quickly the coolest part on the pitch to Donovan Edwards you can ask the people who I, were, I was with I said as it's unfolded, oh. I'm like he's throwing that ball and then you were
1: at the game,
0: oh and it was a fantastic scene and I was walking to go see because two of my cousin and my uncle had come down from Michigan for the game and as I'm walking to go visit them I see this handsome man standing and waiting in line to go get some food and I go behind him and i hug him and he turns around he's like who is this and i go hello cousin aaron it's me alex a different cousin that i wasn't expecting and so he goes oh hey alex how are you? Like, what are you doing here and i was like i live here what are you doing here um and so it was a phenomenal experience and as always go blue but two part number two you often give me grief david about you know how many podcasts are we recording here at cracked rackets a day do i have time to have any other conversations and the answer to that question is no i don't talk to anyone else but b uh, um, you know, I know you're watching challenger streams. You're watching future streams. You're watching ATP, WTA tour level action, and you're watching Big Brother, and you're watching Survivor. How do you? And you're watching the New Orleans Pelicans, which maybe that's the thing you've given up and the this New York season. Giants and exactly. NFL Red
1: Zone.
0: So and all of this begs the question, David. How do you balance it all?
1: Honestly, tennis is almost <laughs> like my happy place. Like where you know, like where honestly, like. When it it's just my place where I it's all it's like I can relax and I can enjoy you know the challenger team Not every match is enjoyable. Um, it's not enjoyable, for instance, today to see Diaz Acosta blow a uh, six six three five three lead and just see the struggles of you know a younger player. But it's it can be enjoyable. Um, and I, I, you know, you have priorities, right? And for me, my priorities, you know, beyond family, friends, you know, all that is. And know, really sports and reality TV. Uh,
0: no. So. Well, whatever gets it done, David. I think in this era, p- post-COVID, that's what we've all learned is we all have to find the little things. You know what I'm also victories. into? Oh, give it to me.
1: you watch Top Chef? I've been like binging <laughs> Top Chef.
0: I do not. I had a streak where I was into The Voice, and it was actually in college. But the truth is, for me, it's all tennis all the time now. You're right. I get to pick— Between the podcasts trying to maintain some semblance of a normal social life and then you know I also have some non-tennis sporting passions I try to monitor the thing I have given up is television that is just the one thing other than succession which is like mine and Westoff show we try you know I, I've shared this before I try not to bother Westoff too often because you know he not only he comes out of his office all day after hearing my voice editing my voice <laughs> editing my face seeing my face his life is me and then he walks out his door and I'm his roommate as well so you know I try not to bother him too much but one of the things we do do together is watch succession every sunday that i'm up to date on and don't worry we we're not worry we not we are not going to get into a succession review here no spoilers um but other than that i will say sadly i've given up things like top chef i'll sneak in a diners drive-ins and dives youtube clip every now and then because you know i still have passions uh i feel like i would be a great <laughs> guy Fietti i would be rolling out looking for america's greatest Diners, passion. drive-ins yeah. and dives yeah you know <laughs> I don't i'm know. not
1: You know, I I don't think it's a terrible idea to do
0: frosted tips.
1: I think it works for some people.
0: Yeah, the problem is I'd have to do it to my eyebrows as well. I'd have to frost the tips of them, and I don't know if that's a solution. Anyways... It's great to have you back on the show, my friend, and obviously today I know is also something that's right up in your comfort zone, and that's looking at the American men. And before we get into our top 10 seasons, I just want to give you some stats from throughout the year that I think American men's tennis fans will hold near and dear. Let's start with a tweet of mine. Back in October, at that point, you know, end of the season, we have eight American men in the top 60 of the ATP rankings. But at that point, we had nine singles players in the top 60 of the singles rankings. The last time the U.S. ended a season with that many top 60 men was 1999. Now, again, we end up with eight in the top 60 but we have 60 you know number 66 and 68 as well so you extend it to top 70 they're right there with a 1990s comparison which again is held as the golden era in American men's tennis i alluded to this earlier 10 american men make atp finals this season by the way those 10 men for those of you who are curious because it is a very very interesting and i think well dispersed list you had Isner, you had Query. They continued to get the job done at some to some extent, I suppose, this year. You then had the next wave: Opelka, Fritz, Paul, Tiafo, Korda, Nakashima, Brooksby, of course, Kozlov, Wolf, Cressy. Others having tons you know, of Cressy, challengers. Oh, go ahead. Know,
1: Cressy can make the top one hundred this week if he He's- wins the title.
0: He's making a big push. Exactly. We're not even at the end of the year yet. I'm
1: sorry. 101. He'd be 101. No,
0: No. but the point is, will he play another tournament after that? Very, very possible. And so some other stats for you. You look, and I went all the way back to 2009 for these ranking numbers. I could have gone back further. I apologize. I didn't. But let's just look at the past decade plus of American men's tennis. Top 200 players, David, the high entering this season, 19 players, which we had hit at a couple of different points. There are 22 American men right now currently in the ATP singles top 200. Even with the rankings freezes, we saw in- improvements uh-huh. increase from the American men. Again, that's over 10% of the top 200 American men. You look at the top 100, we had hit double digits once in the past decade at the end of the season. That's at the end of the 2018 season. There were 11, and if you remember, that's at the time when you know Fritz has an ATP final on his resume, and uh-huh. Tiafo has had all of this success as well. Those guys were still a little bit on the younger side Jack Sock hadn't gotten injured yet. You know, Isner, Query, Johnson, they're still in the prime of their career. You had a Sandgren resurgence as well. But this year, we surpass that right now, as there are currently 12 American men in the ATP Top 100. Of course, many of the names I already listed. Fritz, Isner, Opelka, Tiafoe, Paul, Mackey, Brooksby, Giron, Nakashima, Johnson, Sandgren. Of course, you've got Kudla at 105, Query at 108, Cressy at 112, Kozlov, you know, had a top 125 in terms of points accumulated season. There are a lot of Americans right on the precipice. Six Americans in the top 50, by the way, most in the past decade, most since, you know, early 2000s, late 90s, three top 35 players. Now, you know, we've hit that number a bunch of times, and that number's actually stayed the most constant over the past decade, but the depth in particular, David, six top 50, that's a high. 12 top 100, that's a high. 22 top 200, that's a high. The age range of this group as well, uh, it's just an open question, I suppose. What's your takeaway from 2021 in American Men's Tennis?
1: Yeah, even Jack Sock is sitting at 145, and he, you know, <laughs> he can play with the best of them. My takeaway is... We've taken the first step in terms of getting a lot of players, you know, up in that in the ranges that you just mentioned, but none of the players so far have taken that next step to the top of the game. That's what I'm looking forward to in 2022, to see a guy like Brooksby, Nakashima, uh, Taylor Fritz take that next step, Korda, up to the top, you know, 15, top 10. Um, and some of them are knocking at the door, uh, which we'll get well, i'm sure
0: well i i do want to talk though more broadly because you know you and i fairly similar in age range and 2010s american tennis i mean that's the era when we grew up following tennis most closely and respectfully like again i know you're a big isner guy and yeah he has been the constant in american men's tennis him and 20- query. exactly and uh, that's what i was gonna say sam's pretty good and obviously he's made a couple slam semifinals and You know that's one of the goals every player has. As if if any junior right now, you can say, "Hey, you'll you get Sam Query's pro career." Every single one of them would answer that question, yes. And so that's a testament to the success of Sam. But still, you know, I I know you sneak him in there, and I can hear a little bit of like anger in your voice, which I kind of (laughs) like. But um, Uh, no anger here. No anger. (laughs) No. But it's just that you know. Again, Isner Query. And then the third guy, you know, Stevie had it for a little bit. Jack Sock had it for a little bit, but
1: well, I would say that Jack Sock, you know, he won multiple doubles majors. Uh, you know, Masters One Thousand. He would, you know, had a good run in the ATP Finals. I would say, you know, he had. He's definitely a constant too. I I
0: under- no no fair. But again, to, to the larger point here, you have – a. a con, but even for Jack's run, you say it was three years, four years, fine. Um, and obviously he still has the talent we're not. we're not going to – oh, maybe we will litigate Jack Sock if he's on your top ten <laughs> list. But the point I'm trying to say is – and you look at the top 35 numbers, there are always three, four guys. You look at the top 50 numbers, again, three, four guys in the mix in any given season. Uh-huh. I think the first takeaway for me from this year, and yes, it's about the development of the young guys. And you can go back, you know, early 2010s. Ryan Sweeting, Greg Led and the you know Tim Smichik's of the world. Of course, Evan King uh, is turning pro around that time, and you know there's a, a whole generation. Ryan Williams at the time who had a ton of talent, but. You know, they weren't able to make that top 100, top 50 push. That yeah. said, you look at the group this year, and again, I'm sorry to keep listing these names. You're going to hear them a lot. And I'm even when you go beyond John Isner, who's still a top 50 player for sure, but when you go beyond him, that Tiafo, Fritz, Opelka... I think have solidified spots. You know, they are top 50 guys now. They've proven it. The consistency yeah. this season. We'll get yeah. back to that. Yeah. Those three in particular, they've proven yeah. it. So there's your group of three just covering the base moving forward for what we've seen the past decade. But then you add in, obviously, that next generation, Brooksby, Korda, Nakashima. They feel like top 50 guys. Of course, guys like Mackie McDonald, Marcos Giron, and Jack Sock, Dennis Kudla, Tennis Sandgren. They've proven it. They are in that top 100 mix at this stage of their career when they're healthy, when they're playing full you know, segments of time. Teddy Sandgren has been in the top 100 now for three years. And, yeah, some of that's ranking freeze, and he is not on my top 10 list. I can't imagine he's on yours either. But he's, pro- yeah, but, but he's proven exactly that he's a top 100 guy. And so there's just a depth now. If, or even maybe top 50. It just feels like there are maybe 10 top 50 talents right now in American men's tennis, that's my first takeaway is that, okay, we may not have the number one guy, but if you're just playing the percentages with how many American men now are going to get into the main draws of these Masters events, of these Grand Slam events, it just feels like now we're at the point where we should expect one of them to sneak into a round of 16 or further at a Slam, to get to a quarterfinal at a Masters event as we saw throughout the course of the season.
1: Yeah, and I wanna go back to Tennis Sangram for one second, and I just wanna say people, you know, he didn't have a good year, but he was what, a point or two away from beating Federer in making the Australian Open semifinals. So <laughs> he has a level to, A lot of and that's I guess the point here is that these guys, you know, even if they you know, Jack Sock, one forty five. Cressy, we've seen how much challenger success he's had lately. These guys, they even the guys that are not the top fifty guys are still really dangerous, big threats when they're playing well. No one wants to play Max Cressy on an indoor hardcore. or even on an outdoor hardcore. We saw at the U.S. Open this year with uh, Colonel Busta. Uh,
0: exactly. And it's it's so fun about this group is they're very, very young as well. Again, when I look at my list of seasons, I mean, all of these guys are under the age of 26, 27 years old. And so I even, just— Oh, my well, god. Well, I guess it, what is Garonne twenty-eight? I may have missed. No, it I
1: guess you don't have John on your list.
0: Well, uh, that's funny. Of course, I like, again, you're coming in spicy today, David. I like that. And I like that right away. And this is, you know, people accuse me of being the reason we're going to go to, you know, over an hour and a half here. But I like a passionate defensive tennis sandgren to start. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking for here on this pod. Because again, it just feels like this was a season to get passionate about David as an American men's tennis fan. And again, it's not just the guys at the ATP level. Uh, I tweeted this out, but the Emilio Navas of the world, who killed it at the ITF level, he's going to have a shot to play challengers now next year. And guess what? T- under 21 years old, that's where you want to be. Not everyone's a Holger Rune. Not everyone's a Carlos Alcaraz. But if you look at the career trajectory, Emilio Navas on the right side of that. I think a guy like Oliver Crawford, he had an excellent year. I think in the grand scheme of things, Zach Sfida had a great year. And like you could argue, again— the jump in level that he made and the significance of defending your Kalamazoo title and having this success right as you are turning pro, is that jump more impressive to me in terms of a top 10 season than what John Isner sustained doing this year? Like that is the what? question you ask yourself when you're making this sort of list. And I think there are other names you can turn to as well. The Zane Khans Zip. of the world, Govin Nandas, Vassal Kirkovs, they all had good years, David. And it's like It made this exercise really hard. I'm curious, what were the things you leaned towards and, you know, made your preferences?
1: Um, well, I tried my best. I went on that whole rant last week about narrative-based, uh, (laughs) you know, so I tried my best to be as objective as I could, but it's so hard because there are a lot of these guys, I would say the top eight are pretty much interchangeable in my
0: mind. There's, there's very little separating them, um... Well, here's my question to you. Is it more, does it matter in your list if someone goes from top 200 to 75 versus going from 50 to 35? Like, is that more impressive? Because, and I know that's a significant jump, but, you know, again, I think, to me, you talk about narrative. I don't think that's a narrative base. I just think that's talking about the respective levels in professional tennis. And, like, for Marcos Girón to solidify himself in the top 75, that jump he made this season where he proved it, it's like, nope, I belong in this level, that is far more valuable to me. And I think a far more impressive season – than John Isner doing what John Isner does. Like, we knew what John Isner was capable of entering the year. We did not know that Marcos Giron was going to pop off as many quarterfinals as, as he did. And so I don't know if you factor that into the narrative category, but I think that has to factor in when you make this sort of list.
1: When I was thinking about Marcos, I thought about how he really was having success at the ATP level. Um, sure. So That's kind of where I kind of factor that. I didn't necessarily... You know, yeah, I did talk about, you know, I talk, talked about, you know, no, I'm just, this isn't much of a spoiler, but Brooksby's on my list. And I did sure. make notes, his rankings jump, which is massive. Um, but at the same time, I think the reason why I would, and I'm not going to spoil, I would consider Her- Marcos for my uh, list is because of the how he was pretty solid at the ATP level which I consider maybe a little more impressive than getting a challenger here and there.
0: I agree with you. And to me, again, I don't qualify that as narrative. I just qualify that as, look, there are different levels in professional tennis. You have to, when objectively looking at it, value different successes differently because that is how you distinguish these players. And with that said, David, let's get into the list. And look, with Nina, we started at the bottom because there was a little clearer top tier for the women. But with you... I think we should start at the top because, again, there were a lot of impressive individual seasons, and we'll get into each individual, I'm sure, over the course of the next 40 minutes to an hour. We'll see how far we go. But with all of that <laughs> said, David, uh, let's start at number one. Give me your most impressive American man to start the season. Oh, man. Or and this, throughout the season, excuse me. I
1: think – I don't remember if the podcast has started yet when I told you this, but I – I'm questioning this on I and you might, you might totally disagree. Okay. I'm going to just say it Taylor Fritz.
0: So I, he's not my number one, but I can see an argument for him and I would love to hear yours.
1: Well, he had three top 10 wins. So he really got, you know, he, he challenged the top players that Indian Wells semifinal was really impressive to me. I know this is not you know something like official, but the fact, the way he played Djokovic in that Australian Open uh, match, I thought was very impressive. He's the highest ranked American, uh, twenty three in the world, which I think you know, twenty three shows a level of consistency at the ATP level, which we were just talking about her own, but obviously Taylor takes it up a notch. That is impressive to me that the fact that he was able to play that type of tennis for that long to sustain that type of ranking. The St. Petersburg final which he should have won. Um, he really had his chances in the third set against Chilich, And then this is where I kind of, I, I look at my notes and I kind of say, okay, this is where you're getting a little back to that narrative base. When I just think about it, he was in a wheelchair at the French open. And then the fact that he beat Nakashima, he came back at Wimbledon, he beat Nakashima and he really took off from there um, over the second half of the season. Uh, for me, that's kind of why I have him at one. But again, like I said, I kind of like my number two. Oh my, it's so close.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, again, he is the top ranked American male. And I, uh, you know, I'm really, I tried my best to not go just directly by the rankings. And that was where Nina and I disagreed the most. Cause you know, the rankings are a pretty accurate reflection. Well, who's playing better right now uh, than everyone else. But You look for Taylor Fritz, I agree with you. There were so many positives across the board in his season, and you want to just start, you know, again, overall with the success that he had on the year for, you know, Taylor this season, 34-22 and overall on the season. And that includes, uh, you know, a run to the final of St. Petersburg. It includes, obviously, his semifinal runs at Indian Wells, at Los Cabos, in uh, Cagliari, and Doha as well. And then again, you know, he beat Opelka. At the Australian Open, plays Djokovic two five sets. He, you know, at the uh, U.S. Open, really fun match where he knocks off Alex De Minaur before getting knocked off by Jensen Brooksby in the second round. But those that were was a fun one, yeah, those matches just felt significant. And you know, again, Wimbledon beats Johnson, beats Nakashima before getting knocked out in four sets by Alex Zverev. It just felt like you know Clay. It wasn't his best part of the year and the loss to Copefer in the second round. Of course, he hurts his knee. But you also have to keep in mind that knee injury, that he suffered that sort of injury and finished the season, you know, has surgery, is out for a couple of weeks and finishes the season the way that he does. I'll absolutely hear an argument for Taylor Fritz as the number 1 season and some other arguments that would, you know, perhaps supplement uh your argument here David, you look amongst the American men in the top 50 against opponents ranked, you know, outside the top 50. Fritz had the highest win percentage. He was 19 and 6, 76% win percentage. Tommy Paul next on that list amongst the Americans. He's 22 and 8 against Real. players outside the top 50. Isner 11 and 5, that's a 68 win percentage. Opelka 14 and 7, that's a 67% win percentage. Francis Tiafoe 24 and 16, that's a 60% win percentage. So again, fritz in the lead there now you look again by win percentage against top 50 opponents isner the highest on the list he was 12 and 7 but second a uh, second behind him interestingly is tiafo 13 and 11 and then you know again fritz uh above corda above oh i didn't look for Korda, by the way against opponents ranked oh corda just beneath uh taylor fritz slightly worst but for me That's why Taylor Fritz is a little bit, you know, yes, his wins, I sort of made the case for why he's a little bit lower, and I suppose I can get into that here. Yes, unequivocally, this was a successful season for Taylor Fritz, who, again, you look overall for him, uh, you know, hold percentage 82.1, that's above his career average this year, break percentage 20.4, that's above his career average, and he's finally above that 20% threshold that you almost need to have to be a top 50 player, and I think this was a prove-it season for taylor fritz where he just kind of you know for him because it's always been an athleticism thing and now that he's 24 25 years old has had the amount of time to put in the requisite work needed in the gym i think this was the season where we saw all of that bear fruit and why you know you talk about the top 10 wins i do think that's interesting and for you know whatever it's worth you look amongst the american men in terms of total top 10 wins tiafo had four uh Corda, all, right, all right let's see Tiafo has no no excuse me yeah Tiafo has four uh you look Fritz has three isner's got two Corda's got two I don't believe Tommy Paul uh has any yet yeah, Tommy oh Tommy Paul and Riley both have one you know again for Taylor he came closer to answering that question but I I just think so can I get into my number one do you yeah, have any final thoughts on Fritz because I know I mentioned a lot of different things there
1: yeah no I mean the Even like for Fritz, like even the semi or the quarterfinal in Paris. Yes, he only made the quarterfinals. He lost to Djokovic. But at the same time, look what he had to beat to beat there. Sonego, Rublev, Nori. And Mm -hmm. then he played Djokovic. He just, he has now a level. He's putting it together to where he can beat a Rublev and a Nori. And we're not shocked.
0: So, I have Fritz, I'll be honest, third on my list. Like, I, I don't Fair. disagree with you. He is very high on my list. And I do think that jump he made, because you just talked about it, the jump from number, fi- you know, a clear top 50 player in the world, because with Taylor Fritz serve and he's holding over 80% of the time, and he's done that now for a couple of seasons, that's a top 25, top 30 number. When you're holding at that rate, you're just yep. going to have success over the course of an ATP season. But that the rest of the game has caught up as well, and now it's at the point where with that serve, and he's never struggled with the ground strokes, but now he's got the movement, the physicality to get there and hit the ball cleanly 75% of the time instead of two-thirds of the time. Mm -hmm. That jump and his comfort level at the net, he continues to force himself forward even if he's not the best volleyer, and long-term, that's what you love to see. He made a jump this year. Like, there's no denying the jump he made was from top 50 in the world quality to now he's a top 30 guy. You see the weapons he has, the physicality he can play with, and, you know, he, he, uh, he's, he's, he's got a huge s David. Like, just bits of steel. I don't know how else to say. Well, like, okay, there's wait, no de- he's primetime Fritz. He's a PTP.
1: I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Okay, uh,
0: give it to I like that.
1: Well, well I don't—you know, I, I think that, for instance, in the St. Petersburg final— He's lost, okay. He's, he's one in five in finals. Um, he made St. Petersburg. He choked it this year, I would say. And b- besides in, in Memphis, Atlanta, Los Cabos, and in uh, Acapulco, his the other finals he lost, he didn't win a set. Um, and so.
0: So you're playing the record, and that's fair, and like. You know, as a a podcast that prides itself on metrics, it's probably worth noting he's 8-21 against the top 10 in his career. But, like, when you look back at the matches, five sets against Djokovic, right, at the Australian Open, and four sets against Sevilla at Wimbledon, and if you want to go back in time, you know, some of the— the breakthrough performances four sets against Stan in his first Wimbledon main draw back in 2016 and you know five sets against Zverev in the second round Wimbledon a couple of years later and just you know he's played Isner really close over the years a bunch of different times as well and you know i just think he's he's often come very very close to earning those definitive defining wins And this year, he actually earned a couple of them. And yeah, two of them were at Indian Wells in Beratini and Zverev. But this year, he came a step closer because in the juniors at the challenger level beforehand, he was always able to find that big serve, always able to find that big ball down the line. And I think now he has the physicality to where he can get back to doing those things at that level again at the highest levels of the ATP tour, and again, I'm. It's funny now how we're arguing opposite sides, and I still think that's. We're not cool. arguing.
1: We're de- we're having. Yeah. discussions. <laughs> no arguing.
0: The pejorative argue, David. Pejorative yeah. argue, but it's funny how I'm shape shifting because again, that speaks to the difficulties of this list. But I, I, and I promise, I'm going to let you talk here. The thing that I just want to hone in here, and why he's number three on my list, and why I have him this high. Is because, again, the higher you descend up the ATP rankings, the harder those jumps get. What I'm trying to say is you're right. He's still not at the elite of the elite level. There are still—you know, the weakness is still at a uh, point—the movement is still at a point where it's a weakness, where it's something the best players will be able to expose. But that's really it at this point. Like, he's a top 30 guy, and that jump is— the second hardest jump to make outside of being a top ten guy, being the guy. And he made it this year, and that's why it's a top three season.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I, yeah. I can't I can't argue that. I do you know, and I can't argue that you have him at three either, because it is so close. Now yeah. I'm interested to see who you have at one.
0: Well because- it's interesting. I, I want to get back to my number one and my number two, but I'm curious because I think there were three very Obviously, these are three guys who are ever going to be entwined. And with all due respect to Tommy Paul, who had an excellent season, who I know is going to be on both of our lists, I think, respectfully, Taylor, Francis, Riley, they're probably a tier above Tommy right now with the uh, level of consistency. Oh, so you're pushing that, back. So Is I, that your top three? That's no, so top. Th- that is not my top three. Okay, But on. I do okay. have the three of them grouped together. And okay. I do think it was track. important to do so. And so I want to get into that next because obviously those three are intertwined and then we'll get back to my top two, I promise. But I'm curious to hear how you distinguished between the seasons of Opelka, Tiafo, and Fritz, because I'll just tell you, Fritz is my number three. Tiafo is my number four. Opelka is my number five. And I'll get into oh, my right. arguments, but I feel like I've been dominating this conversation. No, you have no, Thank you. But where do you have them?
1: I have so I have Opelka at three. I have oh. Titeafo at five. Um,
0: Interesting. So we ha- we have them all top five. So we agree. Yeah. But why why do you have them where you have them?
1: I think for me for me the fact I, I I wanted to put Opelka lower, but I when I look back at that Canada tournament, and I know one tournament doesn't make a season, but it kind of does. Right? A canoe sure. in, at the U.S. Open, obviously. There's situations like that. For me. Opelka, oh, the fact that he beat Curios Dimitrov, Lloyd Harris, who had a breakthrough season, um, Batista Gut in Sitsipas all to get to that final is just so impressive to me and how he served in that tournament. The fact that he crossed, crossed the top 20 threshold in September, you know, that's impressive to me too. The Rome, we forget that he made the Rome semifinal, I believe, um, Remember, I think that was Nadal. He was that was the match, I believe. That Nadal, um, he was getting mad at Nadal. Um, mm-hmm. And then second week of the U.S. Open for me, even though there were some lows, I ha- I felt like he had to be top thirty. Um,
0: so. so- Let's let's get to Opelka then first, who, again, I okay. have lowest on the list. You look for Riley Opelka, 21 and 22, I believe. Well, let me make sure that's right because I think that includes – yeah, 21 and 22 overall on the season. Now, that includes Davis Cup. But to me, TK-10. I think – well, I think that's indicative of the hot and cold. Like what we saw is – Something that I think we knew going in that the best of Riley Opelka can look very, very good. And you look for Riley throughout his career, whether it was, you know, the hot streak at the end of twenty eighteen when he wins the Knoxville Challenger, wins the Champagne Challenger back to back, enters the top one hundred, gets that main draw wild card into the Australian Open and it just feels like from there, you know, he started rocking and rolling and you know, he beats Isner. In five sets. And then, you know, he goes to New York, wins his first ATP title there, and, you know, has, you know, I think it was a semifinal for him. I'm looking here. Yeah, semifinals in Atlanta, semifinals in Tokyo, semifinals in Basel to end the season. We've seen flashes of excellence for Miley before. Now, there's no doubt the excellence was even better this season. And as you mentioned, the semifinal run in Rome, the uh, you know final run in Canada, he's come that much closer to mastering the first serve. And I know this seems like it's a silly thing, but you look for Riley over these past four seasons, David, on the ATP tour. 2018, he wins 56 points, or excuse me, he makes 57% of his first serves. 2019, 64%. 2020, 65%. 2021, 66%. Now... (laughs) What's interesting to me is that the first serve percentage has leveled off a bit. So it was down to 77.2 this season. He was holding only 88.5% of the time this year. And you compare that to the obvious comparison, a John Isner or a Milos Raonic, guys like that who their game is predicated on success on serve, Matteo Berrettini, they're typically in the 90% club. They're holding over 90% of the time. Now, the difference between Riley and those guys is the break percentage and you look for Riley Opelka, you know again, or just the returns in play, it feels like, you know, his numbers a little bit higher than those guys. And I think that's the positive. I also think it's kind of a low-hanging fruit positive that he's not over 90% hold percentage consistently yet. It's indicative that his first serve can get better, but To me, it's the inconsistency. It's like, yeah, we saw the high was his high, but I thought the lows of those three guys for Riley was probably the lowest of the bunch, and that's why I have him at five because, you know, again, you look for the break percentage, it was 9.9% this year. Like, that's 49th out of the top 50 players. That is not good. And just like, even with the returns in play percentage being a little bit higher for him, like, I, I, I just still think there's there's big vacillations in Ryan Lee's level from match would, to match that the other two guys don't experience.
1: I, oh, I would say, you don't think Tiafoe has,
0: like... Uh, See, that's why Tiafo's number four for me, David, because okay. I thought this year there was not. I agree with you. Normally for Francis, and in the past, how many three-set matches did he come up just short in? How many times was there the big Australian Open final followed by five losses in his next seven matches? This uh-huh. season, you look for Francis Tiafo in first matches on the year, 18-7 and seven overall. He lost seven first-round matches in total. And, you know, you look at the names of who they were. Marcos Guiron, three sets in Paris, but that's the week after he makes the final in Vienna. You know, Andy Murray, first-round Antwerp, 7-6 in the third. I think that's everyone's—one of their favorite matches of the year. You know, Washington loses to Brooksby, 6-5. and five. I was at that match. It was a fantastic match, and Brooksby was excellent that That was a great match. Like, I don't think that was a bad one. Eastbourne, he loses to Liam Brody first-round straight sets the week before he had won— or, you know, two weeks before he had won the Nottingham Challenger, and he had played Queens Club the week after. I think—I just think that's a schedule loss. Now— Anderson and Estoril seven six in the third, even on paper, not a bad loss. Steve Johnson five sets, yes, that was a bad loss, given he was up two sets to love, but a five set loss in a major, like and then Quarantine Moutet three sets first match Australia, but that was first match Australia. Oh, Everyone's coming out of the bubble, like what of those David that I just listed, and I apologize to our listeners for naming all of them, but are any of those bad losses? Like Here's I would argue, no.
1: Here's what I'll say, though. He's, let's look at the golden swing. Second round loss to Jaime Munar. Second round loss to Facundo Bagnes. Uh, And then in Acapulco, second on hardcourt. Second round loss to Lorenzo Musetti, although Musetti played well that tournament still, you know. There's some second... You know, for me, you know, it's you make great points, and I would <laughs> say the reason why he was top five was because of... The highs he had, uh, you know, beating Sitsi Bas at the at Wimbledon. Uh, you know, he had that win over Center, where he got the crowd on his side. This the fourth round of the U.S. Open. You know, those big wins. Um, those big tournaments, but I still, you know, there was, you know, he should never, you know, he mentioned Stevie Johnson on at the French Open. Johnson on clay is not a good not a you know johnson's not great on clay and it was fair. six two six one in the fourth and fifth sets. fair yeah you know, he should be more fit you yeah know, i don't know you know i agree so here it's so, so
0: here's the thing david if i may just add one more piece yeah, of context of by every category matches outside the – you know, record against players outside the top 50, records against players inside the top 50, records against players inside the top 20, records against players or wins against players because I don't want to go by record, but wins against players in the top 10. Francis and Taylor are ahead of Riley in all of those categories. In terms of total quarterfinals on the year, Francis and Taylor are ahead of Riley in each of those categories. Mm -hmm. I just – don't again, from a consistency standpoint – I would say Taylor and Francis were more consistent than Riley. And Riley's run to the final of Canada Masters is the best result of the bunch. I can't argue that. But why I have Taylor 3, Francis 4, Riley 5 is I think Taylor made the jump this year. He's a top 50 player before. He's now definitively a top 30 player. Francis had been in the top 30 before but he proved it this year he belongs I don't want to say guaranteed top 30 but he's a top 40 guy now he's not dropping out of yeah. the top 50 I think anytime soon and I think that level of consistency because we'd already seen him flash the upside at the Australian Open but now that gap between floor and ceiling has narrowed and that's a very good thing if you're a Francis Tiafo fan riley narrowed that gap you know riley's narrative sorry to use that word from the story uh from the year is similar to francis but i just don't think he narrowed the gap even if he may has pushed his ceiling a little bit higher i don't i still think his floor is a little bit lower than both of those guys and that's why i have it number five
1: you think uh pelcus oh okay you know i just think with a big server like that i think big servers have a maybe uh It's hard to say because they're in every, you know, they're in all these, because they're big, but at the same time, if you can't break, it does lower your floor a little bit. So I, I will, I won't push back on that. Well, fair, but so. I'm still so fascinated who you have one and two.
0: Well, we'll get back to that because just to put the finishing bow here and I promise we won't go in, well, we will go this in depth on every player. That's actually is the promise I want to make to you because we're litigating it all here on today's show. I want to ask this question about these three guys moving forward. And I want to ask this to you about every player, and we didn't do it about Fritz yet because I wanted to contextualize. And by the way, I still would probably agree with you. I think Riley of the three is the one best suited to win a Grand Slam because his ceiling is the highest. When he serves, lights out, as we saw in Canada, it's lights out. Like, I'm sorry, on the right surface, you lose because he he does have enough return skills to get that break, and he is still a seven-footer who can move the way he does.
1: It's why, uh, you know, Isner and Anderson did uh, well in Wimbledon. It's why even I- Isovich won Wimbledon. You exactly. Know, you a big curve on a on a grass court, and it's nearly
0: impossible to break. But let me ask you this. At the Mets 250 or Moselle Open or whatever we call it nowadays, Rotterdam, all three are in the draw. I would probably go, I'd expect Taylor to get the furthest, then Francis, then Riley. Like, and that's to me, I guess, why I had them three, four, five in the end, because I do think huh. they're all fairly synonymous. But again, when you look at those three, we'll start with Taylor first. What's he got to do next year to take another jump? Or what are you hoping to see from him next year?
1: You know, it's hard for me because I really don't see him as a top 10 player. And, Interesting. and I just, I just... The thing is what we always talk about, and we've actually talked, I just remember, I'm just thinking back to all of our past podcasts, and we keep mentioning this, and so I hope the the lack of athleticism, that's just, you know, the fact, the movement, you know, it's gotten better for sure, as you mentioned earlier, but that's really, it's a little robotic at times, I think, Um, and I don't know if you can see that, but that's how I would best describe it, and There's just a natural
0: fluidity to some players that is not there with Fritz. Do you kind of know what I'm saying? Yes and no. From a movement standpoint, yes. In terms of striking a tennis ball, I think Fritz is one of the best ball strikers on tour. I think his backhand comes as naturally as... As is Verev, as a Djokovic. Now he doesn't have the physicality to hit the ball the way he, they those two guys do uh, routinely, but just you name a shot in the book, Taylor Fritz has it. Minus perhaps the drop shot. But he loves the lob. He actually likes the drop shot as well. Short angles. You can just I know this is going to sound so stupid, but watching him play, you can see in his body angle, in his tempo, in his racket speed when he wants to rip a short angle cross court or when he wants to open up the court, go big down the line. I actually think his ground strokes are on the level. I think he hits the ball. If he could move as well as Andre Rublev, he would be, you know, again, a better, like, just we would be talking about his forehand and the way he blitzes everything. It's just the difference is he doesn't give himself the time to do that. The thing is, like, he's gotten a lot better and he is a guy who's going to get 100% of his body and so for me, it's just, it's it's sustaining it. It's, yeah. you know, again, no more first round losses, no more rough patches. You got to just, the consistency week in, week out, that's how he gets his way to the top 10 because he has the weapons to compete on any surface.
1: Yeah, and Fritz actually, and I, you talk about week in, week out, that means for a lot of these American guys learning how to play on clay and I actually think for someone like Taylor was, I can't remember if it was 2019 or 2018. He actually had a pretty good play season. He can he, play. He's
0: good. He's just a good tennis player. Like, he sees the game as well as anyone. It's just, can he get his body to do what his brain wants him to do?
1: Right. And and so, yeah, he he has the, sure, he'll, he has the chance to make the top 10. I don't think he does. I think that the other two guys have a higher... I would say that Opelka has the best chance
0: of the 30 to make the top So let's go then to those two next and give me Riley. What's he got to do? And what do you – well, quickly, do you see Taylor sustaining? Does he stay in the top 30 at the end of the season? Oh, man. I I would say – Give me a ranking range. Give me a ranking range. I would say next
1: season he'll be between 25 and 45.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty good range, though, for him, by the way. And I think if that's where he settles in his career, that's a, again, you trade for that career. And I think that sort of range is like, yeah, I snuck into an Indian Wells quarterfinal. Yeah, I made a big run at a slam, but I also had some rough losses. So interesting. I I don't hate that. Give me Opelka.
1: Opelka, his I think his ceiling is round where isn't his ceiling. I think he can make the ATP finals one day. Sneak in there. I don't think he's going to win a major. But I think he can, you know, make a major semifinal at some point. I think he can really mirror John's career, um, and I because I also think that his return game is better than John's um, when he when he's playing well. Now, like you, like we mentioned a lot, there was a lot of lows um, where he kind of seemed disinterested at times. He you know, he gets into that very slap, you know, slap happy um, from the baseline where he's just slapping at balls and not even, you know when that lacks a days and serving not, you know, like you mentioned his serve percentage, his um, service games, one decline, but there's such a high ceiling there. I feel pretty good about him at some point making a run into the top 15. I don't know when it might be five years from there. I, I agree.
0: Think- I could not mm-hmm. agree more. A 2026. He's going to have that season where he just puts it together and it's a, he's going to rip off a top. He's going to be like the guy where it's like, ooh, is he going to make that eighth spot at the year-end finals? I totally think Riley's got that season in him.
1: Yeah, and tennis Twitter will be like, no, we don't want serve us. And I'll probably be like, I'd probably prefer not to have him in there either. But If he deserves it, he deserves it. And he seems like a good guy with a good head on his shoulders.
0: No, um, very, very kind guy. I'm a big fan of Riley's. All right, last but not least, Francis. <sighs>
1: Francis, so Francis has already made some, you know, who, you know, twenty nineteen Australian Open. He made that run um, where he was physical and in these matches, and he was, and he went on a deep run in the Slam. I think he can make a Slam semifinal at some point. Um, I don't think he's going to be a top twenty guy though, year in year out. Um, mm-hmm. But I think he can have flashes where he makes a Masters one thousand final. He makes you know a Grand Slam semifinal at different random points in his career.
0: Yeah. Um, I I I just – see, Francis is the guy for me. Man, I think his floor might end up the highest of the bunch. Like I think Fritz's floor right now, match in, match out is the highest. But there were things Francis Tiafo did this season. And obviously the r- run in Vienna left a good taste in everyone's mouth. But look, he's made – A, I think just his physicality in a three-out-of-five-set match, it works. It's proven yeah. now. Like he showed it – really since what that first quarter final run in Australia all of those years ago and just you know he was a guy who was constantly playing five set matches and coming up just short earlier in his career as well and now it's almost a surprise to not see him in the third round not see him be that guy who sneaks into the round of 16 and obviously he beats Pass at the uh, Wimbledon uh, earlier this season and you look uh, for Tiafo, obviously after that you know at his you know US Open fourth round he beats Rublev in the third round and you look for him uh, at the Australian Open this year. Again, he's another guy who plays Djokovic to four sets. Francis is a problem. Like, Francis... I, I think of all the guys right now, Francis is the most ready to make cons- like multiple round of 16s at Grand Slams each and every season, and I think that matters. Like, the forehand was such a vulnerability early in his career. It's just not anymore. Like, it's, it's really not, David. No, it's not. And, the, and just, you see it so in that, the... In, no, and you see it in the percentages for him as well, and you know for Francis this year, across the board, career highs, hold percentage, 82%, career high by 3%, break percentage, 21.3%, 1st time he's over that Mendoza line of 20%, and again, a career high for him in first serve win percentage, second serve win percentage, just across the board, total points won. This is the first time in his career, David, he won over 50% of the points he played on tour. Like... Every mathematical sign, every anecdotal sign, I think Francis Tiafoe is going to end the year top 15. I think he's going to have that sort of season next year. There's my hot take. Put it on paper. Put (laughs) it in pen. Lock it in. I am very, very – I just – I think Francis hit a lot of check marks this year, David. And so for me, it's just, again, can he maintain that focus, maintain that poise? Because he earned it this year, and it's – the hardest thing in the world is to do it twice until you try to do it the second time. And I just think – that's the question, but enough on those three. And again, they're number one, three, and five. Fritz one, Opelka three, Tiafo five on David's list. Fritz three, Tiafo four, Opelka five on my list. Number one on my list, David. I think you can guess it. He is was this. St- no, it's is it Sebi. David, he was the story not only in American men's tennis. He was the story perhaps across tennis. He beat Novak Djokovic in a set 6-1, and it felt legitimate. And all of us were asking, did Jensen Brooksby find the goods? Is he going to be the one in a season where he had won just about (laughs) every match? Was he going to be the one to end Novak Djokovic's streak? And the amount of success he had had this year, David, there was a point, and you know I'm not being crazy here, be honest. As a fan, he takes that first set 6-1. You were convinced he was going to beat Djokovic. Like, can't we are not convinced he was going to beat him, but you thought he had a chance. And, like, I, this, I, I, I just think the idea that Jensen Brooksby put himself in a world where it's like— because I watched that Fritz match, and I watched the Tiafo match against Djokovic, and respectfully to those guys, like, I did not think they were going to win. I actually was fooled for a second to thinking, oh my God, Jensen Brooksby is the one guy who actually if he walks onto the court and thinks, yeah, I can beat Novak under the lights in New York. Why not?
1: Well, I agree with you to an extent, but I would also say it kind. the problem with Brooksby going down the line is that his serve isn't, as we'll probably talk about, his serve, he does not have a huge serve. He has to grind it out. He's had an injury history, and he's going to... As these matches, he can't play three hours every. Yeah, you know, he can't do the Murray and play mm-hmm. three hours every. You know, every match, and so I'm just worried how his body's gonna handle up. But yeah, his peak went like in Washington, in Newport at the U.S. Open. He is just incredible in terms of the shots he can hit, his variety, the way he can pull that drop shot out of the backhand drop shot out of nowhere, the backhand slice, the. The different uh, angles he puts on the ball, the slices—I've I've talked about it so much, but it's just incredible. And he has a way of galvanizing the crowd that is very—that's unique. Have you? Did you notice that you were in Washington? So you—did you notice that? Uh,
0: not only did I notice it, David, it's—it's it's remarkable. Like I've never seen anything like it, and I hate to put it this way because Jensen Brooksby is a friend like again There's there's a list of players and it's not very long who are professionally ranked who will respond to my texts and he is on that list um <laughs> and obviously i'm a huge fan of what he's done and i'm a huge fan of him personally because you're not going to find a kinder kid who's just more passionate about being a phenomenal tennis player that's all jensen wants is to be the very best version of himself on the tennis court do whatever it takes not just every day on the court but every minute every second of the day to reach that best version of himself, and that is palpable for the crowd. You can feel his intensity because I will say this. He's awkward. Like, I love Jensen to death. And again, super producer Max Flickner, who will not be listening to minute number 53 of A Great Shot Podcast, will, uh, you know— he he was the same person. Anyone who was in the tennis circles, you know, someone who was super, super kind, super, super smart, super, super loving, but also homeschooled and thus shielded and didn't have the traditional experiences of public school of being out there in the world and just again socializing the way people who aren't superstars in their sport and have to take that additional time, you know, have those sorts of experiences. It's and, players as is because of the individual. A thousand percent. It, it's it's accentuated that much more. I agree with you. And all yeah. of that said, every match he plays, every success he has, Jensen emerges out of his shell, and you get to see the real Jensen Brooksby. And there's just the innocence of the experience as well. You can see he just wants to win. Like he doesn't care how it, what it looks like. He doesn't care. He just he's out there to win. And fans yes. like winners. We all gravitate to winners. And Jensen Brooksby is a winner. He is number one on the list. If you want statistics, I can give them to you, David. But just, I'm, again, I'm curious to your reaction to all of that.
1: He's, he's, do you want me to tell you where he is on my
0: list? He's got to be top five. I no, would be, he's seven. I'm floored. Floored, David. You look uh, at his overall season. And again, just to be clear here, 49-12, and 12, David. Yeah. He won 80% of his matches. Like, yeah. what are we doing here?
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of it was that challenge. You know, he did win three challengers, lost a fourth final. Uh, he made the ATP final in Newport. He beat players like Davidovich, uh, Karatsa, Fritz, Anderson, tiaf Wager, Elisa, Elisa May. Um,
0: Opelka. Did you watch the Antwerp match in Opel- against Opelka where Opelka was literally like, damn, like I just can't beat this Opelka kid. Opelka
1: was burnt out by that point in the season now. Which is um, why
0: he's number five on my no, list. But go no, on.
1: For, for me, in, in we can't also forget with Brooksby, to just say something also. The fact that he started, I believe, in Pachestroom in, in March, or he maybe a, he had a Futures before that, after yeah. a major injury. And so...
0: Which yeah. is what makes this season that much more impressive. And again, I context matters. And you look at Fritz, and you look at atiafo and you look at Opelka, who we already knew were top 50 talents, and they solidified their spots. And that matters you go back to 2018, 2019, we knew Jensen Brooksby had talent even before he won his Kalamazoo title, even before he beats Burdich at the U.S. Open, but we didn't know he had this in him, and you're right, for him to go from turf toe at Baylor to 80% win percentage on the pro-freaking-tour to make final, semi-final, week after week after week to come through qualifying in certain locations to do it, and again, beats Fritz, beats Karatsev, beats Immer, has to spend 12 hours on court to do so, David, and then Which, takes the first I set from Djokovic 6-1. Like,
1: that's come the, on! The long-term problem, is how long he has to spend doing all this, because of that lack. Like he really does need to beef up that serve, and... And try to end points a little quicker, um, but yeah, I mean, you make a compelling argument. And like I said, uh, you know, the top eight for me are kind of interchangeable. For me, someone—the reason why a couple of the guys who I haven't mentioned are higher—is um, because they've won that ATP Tour type, title, which I think means something to me, you yeah, to me. Is winning that ATP Tour title. Okay, um,
0: but even if he's turned 21 years old at the end of the season and all the success he accomplished, pr- other than his two wins in Paris, were before he could take his first sip of beer, like, I think <laughs> I it's more impressive to go 49 and 10, uh, you know, 47 and 12 in your pre beer days than it is to win an ATP title post beer.
1: I look, I, I and I'm, I'm always harping about it with uh, Augur least Lisa May, too, for yeah. me. May- Winning that ATP title is a benchmark, that's and true. that's whatever. And I think it's important because ultimately, people don't remember your, that you beat, you know, Kevin Anderson or Karatsev. They remember that you won, you you lifting that trophy at the end of the tournament. And so that's why, for instance, Tommy Paul is higher. And I really, and Tommy Paul would have fell them out less big time if it wasn't for that Stockholm. Uh,
0: I guess here's the thing. For him to go 15 and 9 in ATP level matches this season, or excuse me, 15 and 7 in ATP level matches this season, having been 1 and 2 in ATP level matches entering the season, for him to make a Newport final, make a U.S. Open round of 16, make an Antwerp semifinal as well, take Zverev to three sets in Indian Wells, like. I don't know what the it factor is. I don't know how we measure it, but Brooksby's got it. Like this season, it was all Roland Jensen Brooksby's way, and that's why, to me, he's the unequivocal number one on my list. But all right, if he's number one – so he's number seven, I believe you said. Any final thoughts on Brooksby's season?
1: Look, and I don't don't mean to be negative at all because he honestly – if you followed me and everything I've written on social media and whatever – I have been praising him nonstop because he really is just a dynamic talent that you just don't see very often. Um he has he reminds me a little of like a very
0: motivated
1: Bernard Tonic. Um
0: mm-hmm. I did, did that ring No, I by from the feel, from the from ease the which with he no, I, I totally see what you're saying. There's an ease with which they both move the ball around the court where it's like, Okay, you think you're gonna go cross now? Cool, I'll go line. Um yeah. And I totally see what you're saying there, and that gets me to my next question, of course. This is why I'm so excited about Brooksby as well, and what's so crazy, because of how well he already constructs points when you look for Jensen Brooksby— again the percentages are very much in his favor from the year he's holding serve over 80.4% of the time that's a you know top 30 number he's breaking serve 26.8% of the time that's a top 10 number he's already amongst the elite groups in 22 ATP matches which isn't the biggest sample size but it's a sample size and like well his serve well, can get so much better like it's we'll just like it will continue best. to get better that's the crazy thing that's the thing,
1: is you talk about that whole percentage. I think it's a little deceiving in the sense that, like, when you talk about Opelka, you know, what do you say, 88%, that's because he has a huge freaking serve. Mm-hmm. Brooksby okay. is having to work so hard behind his serve. I'm just worried that at some point in the next year or two, he's going to flame out a little bit because his body's just going to let him down because of that same, like I told, said earlier, that Andy Murray effect where you're having to work so hard for everything. Your body just can't keep up. Yeah,
0: I I think that is a fair concern, and I definitely think that's going to be—particularly, again, with the physicality he plays with, how he—because he will want to play every match possible, whenever possible. Uh, How he manages that schedule is a big thing for Jensen moving forward. But again, he's my number one. He's your number seven. Who's your number two?
1: Um, Sevi Korda. Uh, that's why I asked uh, So uh, I
0: have him eighth on my oh list, my which God. is so interesting. And I think if we would have done this exercise in April, he would have been much higher. This is just simply due. Oh, excuse me. I have him seventh on my list, not eighth. I have him seventh. And I think if we would have done this in April, I would have had him even higher. But get, make the case why is he two for you?
1: Um, so. Like I said, the top eight for me. It's like now that you you made your argument from Brooks, me like oh, I probably should have had him in the top three. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have quarter. I, just, I feel like quarter really. If you look at again, he, he's oh, yeah he's forty one in the world, and Fritz is twenty three. And but you know he's still a top fifty player. Final in Delray, he won that Italian two hundred and fifty in clay, so we got that benchmark that that uh, what I think is important. That ATP title. He was in the finals of the Next Gen. Um, very, you know, very close to winning that. Um, he was very close to the. He made the second week of Wimbledon, and I think back to that match against uh, Kachanov, and he really should have won that match. He made a major quarter final. He made the quarterfinals in Miami. I just feel like there's enough success at, in, at at his peaks in terms of the fact that he made an ATP. Final, he won an ATP title and he was so close to that Wimbledon quarterfinal. And the how he just smacks his ground starts, the level he played at, and the fact that also in Paris at the end of the season, yeah, you mentioned that since April, the fact that he had that renaissance in Paris where he, he beat Karatev, took the set off of uh, Medvedev. Mm-hmm. I just am really was so impressed with the season and. He's my number two, and I – you're now going to shut it down, and so I'm bracing for impact. But No.
0: Again, it's all about the degree, and honest to God, the more I think about the list, it's just like what – I mean number six a sentimental pick, and we'll get to it momentarily, why I have that person above them and why I have two, I suppose, above this person as well. But look – Subby quarter was excellent, and I think it's—I'm spoiled because we got the flash of it at the end of last season, right, where he rips off a run at the French Open, and he, you know, rips off a challenger title at the end of the year, and he starts off right away with success at the start of this season, and then, you know, again—what was it? I want to say the Delray Beach final at the start of the year, and then, you know— I, I thought it was a pretty good run for him. You know, I, again, the more I look at this, he probably should be number six on my list, 36 and 20 overall on the year. He's another guy very close to that top 30 club, 81.1 hold percentage trails, just Fritz and Isner amongst top 50 Americans. And 24.1 break percentage, I actually think, is the best number amongst all of the top 50 Americans. And, you know, again— I have no doubts about Sebby Corda in the future. The most frequent argument I get in is with Baylor head coach Michael Woodson about Brooksby versus Corda, and I think you all know what side of the argument he is on. It's tough for me to like because I'm on both. I see both sides of the argument. I, Sebby's I like awesome. Yeah, but no.
1: That quarter is just so special. It yeah, and like I, I guess the thing for
0: me, well. I mean, so he loses three in a row on clay, Belgrade, Munich, Madrid, but then wins the title in Parma. So it's like any clay thoughts you may have had, wipe them out of your brain immediately. He, you know, really should have beaten Hatch to make a quarterfinal at Wimbledon. He was right at the level. And then, you know, for him, wasn't the best fall hardcourt stretch. And I think that's what's in the back of my brain is just, you know, again, and from a schedule standpoint, the losses aren't that bad. Six and six to Sinner, six and three to Pass and... You know, I suppose, Oh, you know, Vili has to retire at the U.S. Open. The loss to Senego in San Diego wasn't great, but he played a great match against Tommy the day before. And, you know, the loss to Francis at Indian Wells, not great, but he wasn't the healthiest. You know, that said, I thought it was a pretty good Paris run for him, to your point. He was excellent. Like, you have no doubts about Sebi Korda coming out of this season and that's why you have to put him on this list and obviously for him he's now comfortably inside the top 50 and reached the top 30 you know top 40 uh earlier this season ends the year at number 41 at 21 years old he is going to get to play whatever schedule he would like in 2022 and that is the ultimate dream for all of these players and so yeah the jump he made in 2021 well, it was a continue of the jump he showed in 2020, and I think if you asked me for a 2020 list, he would have been a top three guy, like pretty unequivocally. What Sebi showed at the end of last season is what Brooksby did throughout the duration of this season, and for Sebi, again, 64% win percentage, he's second in a lot of metrics to Tiafo or Fritz in terms of win percentages versus various ranked opponents, I feel, I, I guess... You know what? I'm going to make an on-the-fly adjustment. Sebi Korda, okay. congratulations. You're moving up to number five on the list. You are wow. surpassing wow. Riley Opelka. You are moving <laughs> just behind Francis Tiafo, number five on this list. I'm making a change, David.
1: Okay. Uh, you know what? I'll move uh, I'll move Brooks and uh, now I Yeah, no,
0: you're allowed to move. This is they're fluid lists. They're, okay. nothing's in pen yet. The only pen list you have to give me is at the end of the time. Right okay. now it's an open debate. I need your locked in list at the end.
1: I'm gonna move Brooksby up to six. Okay.
0: I respect that. And again, if you need to move him up further, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> it's just the listeners that will know. Um, but all right. With that said, again, the question we're asking from for everyone what do you want to see next from Sebi? Because for me for It reminds me so much of Stefano Tsitsipas, where if you watch them at 19, 20, 21 years old, very clear they had the power, whether it be on the serve, whether it be with the forehand, the aggressiveness of their movement, their willingness to move forward, finish points at the net. They have the weapons, the size to find success in modern tennis. But much like young Steph, I think Seppi's a little stiff in the yep. hips. And I do think... I think he's an elite athlete. So that's why I think like this stiffness is just a byproduct of the various back injuries and, you know, various setbacks throughout the course of his career. I think this stiffness goes away and he turns his physicality into the sort of power movement we see from Stefano Cizipas. And again, like I think we could get a big year from Core. I do I think his ceiling's higher than a Taylor Fritz. I think his ceiling's right up there with the best of the best.
1: He has a top 10 ceiling in my in my mm-hmm. eyes.
0: I'm not yeah. saying
1: Make the top ten, but I think that's where his ceiling is, just because of his combination of control of controlled aggression, depth, good serve, consistency. It's all there. His net, yeah, I think his net game could improve for sure. Uh, I think that sometimes he loses that consistency that when he's playing well, he has. But at the same time, there's the result. The proof is in the pudding, and he's made a couple major second weeks, fourth rounds. He's made he won he's won an ATP title. He's made the final of another. He's can shown he can challenge the top of the game. I think that 2022 is really going to be an interesting year for him because if he's as good as we think he is, he might be he he, he really should be in the top 20 by the end of next season.
0: You look for Sebastian Corda. It was interesting. 11 and 12 against the top 50 opponents. Five and four against the top 20. Now the wins. RBA, Hour, Schwartzman, Fonini, and Karatsev. The losses, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, FAA. Uh, You look for him, you know, two wins against top 10 opponents, Schwartzman and RBA at the time were in the top 10, but he hasn't beaten that elite tier yet. The Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Bertini group, you know, that are slightly older than him, but are the guys he's going to have to go through if he wants to get to those final stages of a Grand Slam. That said, to your point, I think it's the physicality, not the weapons that are holding him back and he's only 21 years old so yeah I agree number five on my list I can see why you have him at number two my number two Mackenzie McDonald who I cannot oh. believe I cannot believe you kept him off of your list David to no start I didn't this. I oh, did oh. you, you I almost excuse about. me yeah that you had almost forgotten about Mackie because you could argue this exercise was built for him. Just again, when we're contextualizing the seasons for Mackie to be hamstringless. 18 months, 24 months ago, however long it was, and to see him just slowly but surely ascend his way back up the ATP rankings this season and the way he, you know, went about doing it as well, and you look for Mackie overall here in 2022, 42-26. and You know, again, 68 matches is the hard way to get yourself back into the top 100, and you look for him, you know, uh, gets into the Australian Open with that protected ranking a freaking lutely makes the most of it. Wins over Chechenato, Borna Chorich, a uh, straight set win over Lloyd Harris that is certainly appreciated with time before getting knocked out by Daniil Medvedev. He goes right from there, David, and he wins Nur Sultan. Uh, the challenger, of course, but he wins the Noor sultan challenger and, you know, gets wins over Kukushkin, Laxanen, and at the time what we thought might be an inform Yuri Rodionov. He qualifies for the Miami Masters and wins a round. Qualifies for Munich and wins a round. Qualifies for the French Open main draw, wins a round. Qualifies for Wimbledon as well. Finally gets into Washington on his own volition. What's the first thing he does, David? He makes his first ATP final, beats Kyrgios, beats Pair, beats Evash beats Kudla, beats Nishikori before losing a fantastic 7-5 in the third set match to Yannick Sinner in the final. Now, he slowed down a bit at the end of the year, but again, at that point, he had pretty much crossed the 55-match threshold. For him to be back in the top 70 of the rankings, for him to be back in the top 60 of the rankings, for him to reach a new career high this year, David... He's just back where he belongs, and I know we had seen this level from him before, and do we really learn anything new about Mackie this year? I don't know, because we had seen flashes of it, but now he's captured it, and to go from no hamstring to capturing and solidifying a top 60 level, number two on my list.
1: Okay. I think for me, maybe if he had beaten uh, Garin at the French Open, maybe I would see his... Uh year a little differently.
0: I don't know if you remember that one. Too. Yeah, the 8-6 in the 5th, right? That was yeah. the one where Mackey
1: had his he really, chances. He definitely should have won that match. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that Washington final was really impressive. I always appreciate the challenger, um, Nurse Ten. He made the fourth round of the Australian Open, like you mentioned. Like, we were talking about rankings jump, 193 at the beginning of the year, 55 now. Um, I didn't put him higher. I read in my notes, not higher, because... Besides the smattering of events, he didn't go deep very often. I think I was referring to his post Washington, which he did not win consecutive matches in any tournament post Washington. Um, I also, before Washington, uh, he did not, he had three straight first round losses in the main draw. Um, And, you know, for me, maybe this is just a little of my own. You know, maybe this is not the most objective measure, but at the same time, I don't see a ceiling as high as any of the guys I have ranked in front of him. Um, I don't have it; think he has that high of a ceiling. So maybe that's
0: why I also stuck him down. Fair, enough. but but again, we're looking at just twenty twenty one here. We're not measuring ceilings. We're not measuring anything beyond the vacuum of the jump. They made. well, we are measuring ceilings, I suppose, but in the sense of how did that ceiling? How is that ceiling reflected in twenty twenty one? And I think for Mackey to get so close to showing his ceiling once again, and again, the consistency he showed across surfaces. And it was so funny because when we last saw healthy Mackey, he was struggling in qualifying rounds of ATP events. He was trying to make that consistent jump from high level success at the challenger ranks to successes at the ATP 250s. He did that this season, David. He qualified yeah. for all these different Grand Slams. And now he's, you know, again, he made money this year. Like he's going to get to get into places on his own ranking and live with comfort in 2022 comfort that can now carry him through the rest of his career and to go from the doldrums of an injury to the highs of a career high like that success in 2021 respectfully I value that more than what Taylor Fritz did which mm-hmm. was an expected jump and Tiafoe is nice to see him back an expected jump but like Brooksby and the degree of success he had was unexpected and Mackie and the degree of success that he had contextualized with the level he had it at was u- unexpected. And that's why they're my top two guys. Cause it's just mm-hmm. like expectations versus reality. When you weigh those two things, those two are the winners.
1: Yeah. I guess for me with Mackey, he may, he went past the second round at only these tournaments, Australian open Nurselton, um, Heilbronn challenger uh and Nottingham Challengers Challengers, okay. Mm-hmm. And then Washington. That was it.
0: Yeah, but how many times did he have to go through qualifying and earn multiple wins in the same week? And like I know how many times to me is the question is did he lose first round matches? And I think you know that's that's the key. Or you know, how many times did he win first matches and how many times did he get past that first round and just make it to the second round of events? And you know, thankfully with our friends at Tennis Abstract who make an exercise like this possible, you look for Mackie. Seventeen and nine in first round matches. Like, yeah. and you look for it, you wanna narrow that out and go, Okay, only ATP level. Twelve and seven in first-round matches at the ATP level. Let's compare that to some of the past seasons. 2019, 6-6. 2018, 6-7. Like, he was better this year. He belongs in the top 70 now.
1: That's why he's on my list. I don't know if he was on my list at all in another year.
0: Fair, Uh, fair. No, and that's to me why, though, he's number two is just, again, it's also the injury story. Like, that is some narrative BS. I won't deny that, but I think he belongs.
1: Hey, I said this. I, I, I mentioned Fritz's injury, so it's a fair beat.
0: Okay, so my number one and two. So I go Brooksby, McDonald, Fritz, Tiafo, Corda, Opelka. That's my top six. Your top six, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Fritz, Corda, Opelka. Did we get to your number four yet? We have not talked to. But, and then your number five it. was Tiafo. So number four is the last one missing here on that list, David. Well, Any final thoughts on Mackie, by the way?
1: Or before seven um yeah but um any th- final thoughts like about what, what's now?
0: the next he, move for him
1: he has a good he, he you know what he, i think he is maximizing his talent and i really i respect him and i appreciate his game in terms of his ceiling it's much lower than just about everyone else on my list you besides number 10 um so yeah. i really don't think he has a high ceiling that high of a ceiling you yeah, relatively high but not as high as a lot of these other guys, but he's maximizing his talent and I'm not going to bash him for that.
0: Fair. I appreciate that. And, you know, again, it's going to be interesting for me... A the non-hard court surface success because I need to see him win some first round matches on clay like that's how yeah. you get to that next level and you know I do think he's going to be he's a guy who on the right week on the right surface he can make he can beat anyone on a hard court that's how well he strikes the ball that's how you know quick Mackie McDonald is and so I think the weapons have been proven there I need to see it more on the other surfaces and thankfully we're going to get the chance to have that. All right, this is going to be our last deep dive breakdown. Then we got to rapid fire through some of these because, again, I I can't put an hour and a half. I can't put a three-hour pot on these (laughs) listeners this early in the offseason. We could do this for five hours. I know. That's the problem is we really could and get into the – weed. like I look at my list. And by the way, I have – well, Vassal Kirkov was just for me. But I have 16 guys I considered, 15 if you take out Vassal um, because whatever. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I can't help myself. Um, But like you're right. This was a really tough – exercise and you know again there are a lot of guys here there's a lot of nuance we'll rapid fire through them down the home stretch but give me your number four.
1: Oh you oh you're gonna hate this one it's isner
0: like, it's isner right
1: it's, yeah it's isner
0: good so we can rapid fire starting from here but make the case for isner
1: well isner let first off he again he's having he's the second hard to believe based on how little press he gets compared to some of these other guys he's the second highest ranked american 24 True. one behind fritz and the reason why is because he consistently found himself at the end of non majors this year. Um, he did not have a lot of success at all at majors, um, but as, in terms of non majors, he had he was finding himself winning multiple matches often. Um, and he won Atlanta, uh, and he ha- he really did not he did not have a season like maybe I expected him at the beginning of the year. But, you know, he was not terrible either, and he did not play a huge schedule at all. But if you – you know, fourth round of Miami, quarterfinals of Madrid, third round of the French, um, semifinals of Los Cabos, one Atlanta, semifinals of the Canadian Open, third round at Cincinnati, third round at Indian Wells, which I guess he had a buy in the first round. So I don't want to – yeah, so that's not that great. But, yeah, he played a limited schedule, and he did better than maybe perception, and he won that title, which, again, is a benchmark for me. Yeah,
0: all right. I can't—again, he was excellent this season. It's just, to me, in the context of the growth from the other players, I did not learn anything new about John Isner this season. I've learned he's still got the goods, and I suppose you're right, the success he had— no, you're right. It's it's sort of taking advantage. Just again, we've grown accustomed to the success of John Isner. He has been the shining light uh, in what has been a dull decade, no doubt, for American men's tennis. But I just again the growth we saw from so like how, like Marcos Giron, the success from him. You're telling me Isner had a better season in 2021 contextualized than Marcos Giron?
1: Objectively, I say yes.
0: All right, that's why I love this. See, this is why we're a great balance here on this show. I, I, you've said it very well. I have nothing more to add to your Isner take, other than to say enjoy it while it lasts, because it's going to be weird when you don't see John Isner winning Atlanta each and every season. That oh. said, all right, now we get funky here. So my number five again is uh, Sebastian Corda. Your five? Have you is uh, your five yeah. is Francis Tiafra. Did you name your six yet? Brooks, B, you tw- moved him up, right? <laughs> Okay, so my six, Riley Opelka, we're rapid firing down the home stretch here. Okay, give me your number seven,
1: Tommy Paul. uh, Okay, he's number eight
0: on my list. I I, we're similar.
1: Yeah, he was six, but again, the reason why he's number six or number seven, excuse me, is because of that title in Stockholm. If he didn't have that title in Stockholm. Um, I don't think he, he would probably be nine or 10 if, if that, um, but yeah, he got it to a career high ranking of 43. He beat Rublev at Indian Wells for a second career top 10 win. But for me, he's further down my list because of his lack of success this year at majors, which John, John has too, but also the masters 1000s. Um, he only got uh past the second round of a masters 1000 one time, um, This season and he just really didn't do what he he really, you know, he has flashes. The thing about Tommy Paul and I was talking about on Twitter not too long ago was he he really has these flashes of greatness. But at the same time, he his shot selection at times drives me nuts where he just can lose focus quickly. He just does not sometimes make the smart play and he can go out early in tournaments um, because he's just, you know, kind of in and out. Uh, in terms of his focus, uh, what do you what do you think about Tommy?
0: No, that's a great take. I think Tommy, this last month from Tommy Paul is like the first month of this season for Francis Tiafo Or like what we saw at the end of last year where it's just like he's just starting to get to that point. Where it feel. It felt like that loss to Sebastian Corda at San Diego was a breaking point for him. Where he played so well through those first two sets. And he should have won them. And then he had to fight as hard as he did to steal that second set. Had his opportunities at the start of the third. They win away. He loses that match in three. After that, whether it's Indian Wells, whether it's winning his first title a couple of weeks later, it just felt like something clicked for Tommy at the end of this season. And Tommy's another guy much like Francis. The athleticism has never been in doubt. He's a guy who's had a ton of different tools on the court. It's just finding that sustained consistency week in, week out. He found it for five weeks in a row, David, at the end of the season. And I think it was the best five-week stretch of his career, including that run where he won all those clay court challengers to win the French court, uh, French Open wildcard challenge back-to-back-to-back-to-back. To back to back to back. And I do think that jump is significant. All of that said, like again— I thought the other guys, you know, he, the other guys are just a step ahead of him. That's why yeah. I have him a little bit lower on this list, but and and is higher, Brooksby's a little bit higher, Mackey's higher just because a they were younger and you didn't know that they had this sort of greatness in them and B Mackey coming back from injury. But I think we did know Tommy had this level in him. And so yeah, like number have, I have him number 8. Like I I can't disagree with you. He belongs on this list. Him winning a title is a revelation and i just absolutely a debate i've had i think i've had it with you could tommy paul be the face of american men's tennis if he was the best yeah. player would it would people get enthusiastic because he does look like the all-american look he's a good-looking guy let's just say it out loud um it like i it's fascinating because he got a step closer and I you could tell the enthusiasm everyone loves tommy one of the nicest guys you're going to meet yeah, it it's it's interesting. It, it, I agree. It was a great season for Tommy Paul, and channeling that every year, obviously, I think is what he has to work on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think he'll be the face of American men tennis. Though <laughs> I'll no, say, I don't, I don't think he'll ever. I think he'll again, kind of uh, similar to uh, maybe a little uh, like a tiapo light in terms of he he will probably go on a run here and there. He'll win a t- you know a few more titles. I don't see him. I don't see him sustaining it. Um, And I don't even see him doing as well, and I I don't see him going on, like, I I could see Tiopo in a major semifinal. I don't ever see Tom Paul in a major semifinal.
0: Completely fair, and I feel bad that we have to rapid fire through these last few names because I would like to talk about each of their successes as well. Maybe we can get back to them a little bit later. The the truth is I just, and this is bad budgeting by me, I got to get more concise. This is not a top 10 pod, clearly, in terms of conciseness in 2021, (laughs) but Again, let's rapid fire through the end here. I won't lie. I had number seven, Stefan Kozlov. Just the bounce oh. back season for him, where he was entering the year to where he is now at the end of the season. After all of this time, he is finally making his main draw debut at a grand slam. Like, come on. Come on yeah. now. That His run at the end <laughs> of the, the season was gorgeous. one of the definitive runs of the year. I
1: mean, he's, he, see, the touch he puts on the shots or the his touch, his feel, his neck play his serve is improved which you mentioned on your pod with him which I completely agree with um good job with that by the way um Thank you. but uh yeah he has great touch I just don't like his encore attitude I think it sucks um and so and he's so mature in these podcast interviews so it's in my mind it's just I know this isn't totally great his encore play but it's just something to mention you know I don't like when he dances like he did against McHugh uh early <laughs> At the same time, in terms of his on-court play, the fact that he was able to beat JJ Wolf, for instance, in Champagne, like he did on a fast indoor hard court, which JJ Wolf thrives on, the, his returning, his the fact that his serve has improved, and just his—he's back. Stefan Kozlov is back in business, and I think tennis is better for it.
0: Fair, I—that's I, why he's <laughs> number seven. And again, you talk about the feel. It's the servant forehand, and I we talked about it on the pod. Like, there, he could make life easy for himself for the first time this year. That was the missing piece. Like, everything else he could do. It's just, can he find the weapons to, you know, take some pressure off of himself so he doesn't have to hit the drop shot perfectly every time and hit the short angle perfectly every time and can take some chances again? The answer was Yes down the home stretch, and I cannot wait again to see him grow. And if you want to hear more about Kozlov, mini-break podcast from Tuesday, Stefan Kozlov joined us Uh, for an hour. It was fantastic.
1: When you Uh, talk about that, um, I'm just thinking about Jensen Brooksby and how he kind of has to do some of the same things.
0: Very much so. I agree with you. I just think there's a little bit more depth. There's more drive in what Brooksby does. You know, Kozlov was more... Uh, the word I'm thinking what's what's the word I'm missing? It was more not the intangible qualities, but it was more the improvisational. There it is. Where Kozlov is more slice and just drop shot. Where Brooksby's more line drive, line drive, line drive, high percentage, high percentage, high percentage. Where I agree, it's not they're both equally unflashy, but I, it's a different sort of right way of going about it. But I see, I totally see what you mean. Um, yeah. That said, all right, Kozlov's my seven. Who's your seven? Oh, you said your seven, Tommy. Who's your eight? Yeah.
1: Uh, Mackenzie. Uh, okay, Mc-
0: I like uh, that. So these are names we've hit. So our top eight. Well, are the only difference is I've included. Well, what is the difference? Hold on, I included Goslow. Okay, oh, and Yuma Visner. Duh, yeah. that's where our difference is. All right, number nine. I th- I think we're gonna agree. I have Brandon Nakashima. Who do you? Oh my have? god,
1: yeah, I do too.
0: <laughs> yeah, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> Knew that was inevitable. Desperate too, but I just couldn't. Yeah, no, fantastic season for Brandon. Who again? Like made a bunch of you know super successful. I mean his his American hardcore stretch was at three straight finals. Los Cabos, Atlanta, and
1: I don't think he had that third, but uh... yeah,
0: so two straight. Thank you, Los Cabos in Atlanta, and you know again for him slightly disappointing U.S. Open, but I think he's just proven he belongs in the top one hundred. Yeah, it was and I love his decision to go play clay court challenger matches to just yeah. get clay court repetitions under. He did everything right this season. It's just like Brandon hit all the check marks you typically want to see in the young in a young player. He just didn't have the flash result the way a Brooksby did, the way a Corda did, yeah. and that's why he's the lowest of the 3. But, like, he has to be. I mean, the discipline, he just, he's a top 100 player. Even if the serve leaves a little bit to be desired, I think the spots got better. I think the pace got better. He has turned himself into a good volleyer very, very quickly. He belongs on this list.
1: Yeah, he beat players like Raonic, Deminar, Fagnini, Isner twice, Dan Evans, Russo Bori, And, and he, re, he can play with the, he can, oh, he can play some pretty damn good hardcore tennis. And like you said... I also really respect how he focused on improving his clay court game because as we were probably saying, I think we did a next-gen on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He needed to improve his clay court game, and no, it's not there yet, but I think the benefits of his hard work on clay in the years to come will be apparent, Um, and I hope he continues that strategy because like it or not, for these American players, you need to know how to play on clay. You can yep. get around grass for the most part, but you got to know what to play on clay.
0: Yeah, fair. Uh, and I think that's the big question for him, again, seeing how his game translates to the other surfaces. Although it was interesting to see how his shot, making his willingness to take the ball early and, again, willingness to now move forward, seemed to have some success on grass courts. I didn't expect it to fit as well as it did early on, so that's something to keep a note of. Yeah. And, and, and then the last fact. but not least—oh, yeah, yeah. sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just saying, like, his, his grass game works because he doesn't have a ton of topspin on his shots and so it kind of you know, the ball can kind of slide more in the grass and he the serve works well uh but that's uh, i'll stop there uh we can get it done no uh, fair
0: well i was gonna say we did a whole next gen pot on him and we'll do an updated one later as well last but not least garon cressy nava crawford sfida khan they're all on the list you want to throw a kudla a sock in there for tangelo whatever it may be david who's your number 10 my number
1: 10 so I'll tell you I was deciding I had a top 12 in my mind um in the last three on my list were Heron uh Kozlov and JJ Wolf um no Cressy uh no because I feel like with Cressy it's more recency bias with him right.
0: uh Pablo Carino Busta says hello but go on
1: yeah you know Cress, Cressy's 13 how about that uh, number <laughs> 10 is uh Heron
0: yeah, I, I agree with you. Make the case.
1: For me, again, I you know I keep saying this. It's the fact that he went to the ATP level this year from basically out of nowhere, and he really had some good success at the ATP level. He did not have to drop down to challengers, really. He, he was 66 in the world. He got as high as 56 in November, but dad, in April, he was 92. He beat ATP-level players, Tiapo, Schwartzman, Deminar Twight, Millman, Russo Bori at Wimbledon, Struff on grass, which is not easy. Uh, he beat he beat Grigor Dimitrov at Roland Garros. He beat Tommy Paul. Um, and so while there's no eye-popping results, he's so solid through the season at the ATP level, I felt like he warranted being on this list.
0: Yeah, and again, he's got Shakira's hips. They lie. Like, so many different injuries overcome in his career, and Yeah, you mentioned it, the multiple quarterfinals. It just felt like he belonged at the ATP level, and week after week, there was consistency. And, you know, again, you look for Marcos Girón here on the year. It was a fantastic season for him overall, a season that saw him win matches at every Grand Slam, David. Like, main draw matches at every Grand Slam is how you stay in the top 100. It's how you put yourself in a position to not only make money during this season, but then get to craft the schedule you're looking for. And, again, he reached number 56 earlier this season. That's a career high for him, 33-24 and over for all but perhaps most impressively 14 and six David in first round matches he lost six first round matches throughout the course of the year two of them he lost seven six in the third four uh excuse me in f- five of the six matches he won at least one set yeah. Marcos was excellent this season, career highs across the board, and for him, he just hadn't had that many ATP-level repetitions. Yeah, you all remember the run he had at Indian Wells a few years ago, but prior to that, there just hadn't been much ATP success, and this year, he didn't miss a beat, and like for him to do that at age 27, 28, it's not—you know, again, that, those are the sort of breakthroughs that just don't happen. It's not as sexy as the Karatsev breakthrough, but— It's the JV version. It's like a you Bear Ghost. 100%. 100%. up Bear
1: Ghost won some ATP titles.
0: But yeah, similar. Um, But who's to say Marcos does it next season, right? He's put himself in that position.
1: He has. And that's the most impressive thing is the fact, like you were saying, like I was saying, that ATP level success from almost nowhere. um, I know he's had some challenger success, but I never expected anything like this. It was really impressive to me. And I just had to put him on. And you you said he's 10 for you too?
0: He is number 10 on my list. And again, I, I think it was a pretty clear-cut number 10 as well from a feel-good standpoint, just from all of the above. Marcos was excellent this year. And just like when we look back at this season, as American tennis fans, certainly... I think his run or maybe we haven't done a good enough job. We've tried our best here at Crack Rackets to do a good enough job of make clear what he's overcome, but hopefully people will remember what he's overcome to put together this sort of season, this sort of season that sets him up brilliantly for more success in the future. With all that said, David, we've hit that hour and a half mark. I think we've covered every angle of the story, but any final thoughts, any things you'd like to plug as well before we wrap today's show?
1: Um, no, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. And I, you know, I, I, I love talking about this stuff. So, you know, an hour and a half it, I'm okay doing that. Oh,
0: I appreciate it. You never have to thank me, David. I always appreciate your tolerance for our nonsense and I'll do it for you. He's (laughs) at all about, uh, tennis or he's at tennis blogger one. Excuse me. You can read him on correct rackets. You can read him at last word on tennis. You can read him at popcorn tennis. You can read him at, uh, all about tennis as well. His (laughs) blog,
1: Uh, you added the pop. You, what would you think of the tennis, the, my uh, Serena Williams uh, stuff? Uh, well, tennis.
0: you know, David, I uh, as I mentioned Did in the Coswell plug, no enemy plugs here, but you know I enjoy everything you read. Or uh, everything you write and so I will always read that and so yes it is always great to learn more about you again we talked about it last time you were on the show I didn't know you had that Serena streak in you I didn't realize I was foreshadowing a piece for Popcorn uh, you know And I
1: just want to say it's very upsetting she's not going to be at the Australian Open this year oh. I know I know I don't I don't want to see her if she's not like 100% healthy so I get it um but it's still disappointing just because you know, I don't know how many more times we're going to get to see her out on the court. Um, no, and
0: it- well, uh, we have time to get into it, David. We can talk about the entry list. So we can talk about that and so much more. Uh, but with all of that said – this is where we will wrap today's show. So, for, let let's see if he remembers my fantastic guest and co-host, David Gertler, our super producers, Fliegner and Westhoff, who, as always, have a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out. For our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com, use the promo code CR15, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell the people? That's the break. I love it, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Bye.